So, it's January again, right? It's, it's another January. Uh, my kid the other day was asking me, how many Christmases have you had? And I just thought that was sort of a weird question to ask, and I guess I was like, 30-ish? I, yeah. And so I was thinking, here we are again, and some people in this room have had 18 January, some here have had 35 Januaries, and some have had 50 Januaries. I don't think it really matters how many we've had, because no matter who you are, every gust of wind, I think, that happens to be a January comes with a single thought. It comes with an idea, and that idea is progress. The idea is progress. Asking, what must I do this year for the good life? What must I do this year for the good life? The better version of me or or the better version of us. That's what a new year, new me brings, right? See, the hope and need of progress. I, I think this is why I love New Year's because it's men and women contemplating and in reflection while at the same time, again, looking forward with action. But what's next? Again, it makes me love this holiday, makes me love this time. For many, many people, both Christian and unchristian like this room, there's a great hope. There's so much hope. The vast majority of people desiring change. Have we thought about that? People desiring change. How rare is that? Everybody hates change, but not in January. Everybody loves change in January choosing to progress. I was thinking, it's not just change for the worse. Nobody's making New Year's resolutions like, I would like to eat fast food more, or I'd like to smoke more, or work out less, or whatever could possibly, I'm not gonna finish that script this year. Whatever could possibly be, it's always about progression. Nobody here, I think, has crappy you know, resolutions. So again, progression, progression, progression. In marriage, in in pregnancies or in births, with graduations, with deals to come, people to come, checks to come, grades to come, whatever it could possibly be. It's about progress. Now, allow me to read the super chunky quote where this guy is talking about progress. And again, bear with me, it's a little bit thick, but I think, it's, I think it fits. He goes, am I making progress? If I'm really honest, it seems to me that the question is odd, even a little ridiculous. As I get older and and death draws near, I don't seem to be getting better. I get a little more impatient, a little more anxious about having perhaps missed what this life has to offer, a little slower, harder to move, a little more inactive and set in my ways. I'm 32 and I can already already just like, yep. (laughs) And then he goes, am I making progress? He says it again. Well, maybe it seems as though I sin less, but that may be only because I'm getting tired. It's just too hard to keep indulging the lust of the youth. Is that sanctification? I wouldn't think so. One should not, I expect, mistake encroaching uh, senility. I'll do my best for sanctification. But can it be perhaps that it is precisely the unconditional gift of grace that helps me to see and admit all that I hope so? The grace of God should lead us to see that the truth about ourselves. I want to read that. The grace of God should lead us to see the truth about ourselves and to gain a certain clarity, a certain humor, a certain down-to-earthness. So I think this impatient, crotchety, old theologian is talking about, he says that the key to progress is to stop obsessing over progress. And Christians in this room, this is especially true of our attempts for spiritual progress. 
If I just did this, if I just added this, if I just prayed longer, if I just read more, if I just served harder, if I just stayed under the water longer during baptism, whatever it could possibly be. Our inability to truly make real, everlasting, meaningful progress in and of ourselves from January to January should lead us to see the truth about ourselves, a down-to-earthness. See, we are men and women most desperate. Jonathan Edwards, a 1700s theologian and author, um, had a fat list, a huge list of New Year's resolutions. And they're very, very famous. And many people quote them this time. But what I love more than his entire list is the inscription, the inscription written uh, before all of it, before all of his huge resolutions. This is what Jonathan Edwards, his brilliant mind, says. He goes, I am unable to do anything. I am unable to do anything without God's help. Thus, I do humbly entreat him by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions so far as they are agreeable to his will for Christ's sake. I don't know about you, but I mean, especially Westsiders, Angelinos, approaching January with wheelbarrows you know, full of hope and mindset. I mean, did we come with the mindset of, of, of I am unable? I mean, did we approach January's threshold with, I am unable? I know I come every January with resolutions like, I can! No, no, no. Men and women most desperate. Most, most desperate. Now, as I was writing this, I always just imagine your guys' pretty faces as I'm writing this and how, how much it's a blast to tell my fellow peers Tell my fellow you know, peers that, that you are unable, that I am unable, that you aren't able to do anything to make progress, to resolve apart from God now and the rest of this year. And for those here who couldn't possibly understand that, for those here who think I'm nuts, who think I'm wrong, who think I'm stupid, the only way for us to know for ourselves what Jonathan Edwards said about his resolutions or what Ford said about his progress is by us tonight starting with the foremost. It's by us starting off this year with the chief foremost of all spiritual basics, of all spiritual understanding. That's what we're going to be doing tonight. But if I'm absolutely honest, Acts chapter 15, it's open before you. It's really not exciting. It's far from exciting. There are no earthquakes, there are no riots, there are no martyrdom or resurrections or angels or miracles. It's a long, long chapter about a theological debate debating circumcision. <laughs> we're, st- we're starting off our, our year with circumcision. And I know everybody would rather be talking about circumcision rather than the Golden Globes or whatever, but tonight we're going to talk a lot about circumcision If you don't know what circumcision is, Bryce said he can answer any questions after church. So Acts 15 is one long conversation. It's one long debate. Again, it kind of sounds like a giant snoozer, but it's one long debate. And we're not even going to read it all because it gets in some redundancies, but we'll talk about that later. But Christians, I want us to hear this. Whether you believe it or not, 
This very debate in Acts chapter, uh, excuse me, 15, this very debate in Acts chapter 15 uh, has changed your life. This debate has changed your life. Acts 15 is about you. Acts 15 is about me. Acts 15 is for you. And Acts 15 is for me. It's about your progress. And it's about your salvation. It's about my salvation and our spiritual freedom. And for those here who aren't Christian or irreligious or unbelievers, the truth debated in these words can change your life. They can change your life. So despite chapter 15's like lack of Michael Bay explosions, if you believe it and if you receive it, it can transform your everything. So this chapter is crucial. Actually, most commentators and historians say about this chapter that it is the centerpiece of the entire book of Acts. This long, what I called boring chapter, is the centerpiece of Acts. So if you want to write that above that, it's okay, you can write in your Bibles. If you want to write that above that, you can do that. So I hope it has our attention tonight. I, for like the next 30 seconds, is just going to set the scene of Acts chapter 15. See, back then, early, we've been going through Acts for the last year. What was happening was, as people were coming to follow Jesus, mostly who was coming to follow Jesus was Jewish men and Jewish women. Jewish men and Jewish women. And they would come to follow Christ while knowing only the Old Testament law. The whole thick part of the Bible that you're holding, they knew the entire Old Testament law, Moses' Mosaic Levitical law. That's all they knew. They knew and obeyed clean laws, ceremonial laws, eat this, wear this, don't touch this, don't touch that, over and over and so on and so forth. And all of these laws at their core are about bringing man close to God. It's about salvation, really. But if you remember when what we've been witnessing from over the weeks and months that we've been at church and going over this stuff, is it's not just Jewish men and Jewish women coming to follow Jesus anymore. What we've been seeing is Samaritans, Egyptians, Africans, heathens, pagans, a.k.a. Gentiles. That meaning un-Jewish. And Paul, a massive figurehead in the book of Acts, a huge figurehead, he's very popular, I mean, besides Jesus Christ, he is the prominent movement leader of the Christian faith. So Paul's a big deal. And as he's preaching a bunch to everybody from here to there, to everywhere, to everyone, as he's preaching to all these people who have no idea about Jewish customs, all of a sudden, I mean, all, he's, 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 the preaching's happening, but it's not happening with, with an understanding or an explanation that you must follow Jewish law. And so Paul, as he's telling these people, he's telling them just about Jesus. He's not talking about circumcision. He's not talking about clean or ceremonial laws. And this is happening over and over and over. And this, my friends, for the Jewish council who we're about to read about, I mean, it's like, it's like poking the eye of a tiger. Like, I'm going to show you. Look at chapter 15, verse 1. Paul sets some people off. But some men came down from Judea. If anybody cares to know, that's like a 300-mile journey. And we're teaching the brothers, unless you are, are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Unless you are circumcised, you cannot be saved. Friends, the tiger is awake. The debate is on. Now, I'm only assuming that those here, it's a total assumption, that there are those here who are, again, unbelievers or irreligious, agnostic, whatever, where this sounds exactly what you'd expect for the Christian faith. This doesn't surprise you one bit. 
Oh, yeah, yeah, this makes sense about the Bible. Rules, systems, hoops to jump through. This makes a lot of sense about Christianity, about religion, right? Then unless you do this, you don't get this, or a transactional faith or transactional favor. And here's the thing. I totally, 100% agree with you. I totally agree with you. That all religions and all faith systems that make up our world are these, like, Dear Abby columns. Anybody know what a Dear Abby column is? I just age myself. Are these Dear Abby columns, basically where it's these columns, in, you know, the columns in the newspaper, columns in life that give you advice about progress and happiness. How to improve yourself, you know, to get into heaven or six steps to encounter God. But here's the thing. Not so with Christianity. And the reason I can explain this and we can have such strong, concrete assurance is because of what takes place in Acts 15. What takes place? Because disciples like Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, is brave. Look at verse two. We're gonna read into this. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of them were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. And jump to verse four. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. So very, 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 very busy man, Paul the apostle and his buddy Barnabas, stop to handle this because doctrine, truth is important. And they stop and they travel to Jerusalem. Verse five, but some believers who pro, uh, belong to the party of the Pharisees, religious leaders of the guardians of the very law that we mentioned earlier, that's Pharisees, rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them in order for them to keep the law of Moses. Verse six, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And then, and then uh, after there had been much debate, Peter Gosh, I miss Peter. This is the last time we're going to see him in the book of Acts. But Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days, get this, you know that in the early days, God made a choice. I love that. Underline that, whatever, in your phones, do whatever, I don't know. But this is beautiful. God made a choice among you that by the mouth, excuse me, by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Um, I've been wanting to ask this. I've been thinking about this a lot lately, and I've shared this with a few of our friends, but do you know what the most dangerous word I'd say in the Christian life or in Christianity is? It's not or, it's not but, it's not Satan. It's, it's, those aren't the most dangerous words. It was on a giant title screen behind me, if you remember it. It's, that <laughs> a boy, it's and. This is believed to be the most scary, dangerous word in all of Christianity, right here. I probably quote it too much, but it's worth it. I mean, C.S. Lewis in his hauntingly good pointed book on the, the screw tape letters, if you haven't read it, it's outrageous. But where a senior demon is training his nephew demon, a younger demon, to keep his patient, which is a young Christian man, in a constant state of, and get this, Christianity and Keep them in a constant state of Christianity and. In other words, he says that if people must be Christian, like if the person has to be a Christian, screw tape would say, let them be Christians with a diversion. So it's Christianity and success. 
No, it's Christianity and politics. Christianity or Jesus and tradition. It's Jesus and a certain type of dress or music or whatever. And Screwtape finishes by saying, never let them come to a place where mere Christianity, he snuck that in, where mere Christianity (laughs) is enough. Ever, 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 ever. Let me read this one more time then. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of the faith, you cannot be saved. First, I want to ask those who don't follow Jesus, is what's keeping you from following Christ and making him Lord of your life that you might lose whatever's ever on the other side of the word and? Christians here tonight, you know I have to ask, but do you have an ant? Do you have an ant in your life? If you don't know, or if you do know, this would be the question that I would encourage you to bring to our prayer team who will be on the sides of the walls tonight to ask, to ask the, the power and presence of God and the person of the Holy Spirit to reveal. If you don't know, I would encourage you this week, if you're in discipleship groups, to bring this up, to crack open your chest in discipleship groups and ask the people around you who you know the best or the closest or whatever, asking them, do I trust in smaller, less significant things for my happiness or for the good life? That I have to have Jesus in my achievements or Jesus in him or Jesus in her or Jesus in sex or Jesus in my authority or Jesus in a baby or Jesus in a wedding or Jesus in a promotion, or Jesus in a startup, or Jesus in our abilities, or Jesus in becoming somebody of influence, or Jesus in meeting my parents' expectations. If we want to know the best way to expose an and in our life, then we are to examine ourselves by asking, what in my life is non-negotiable? Can you answer that? I can. It's far easier than showing you all my ands, but I can definitely tell you what's non-negotiable in my life, what I must have. What is the one thing now, this moment, this new year, this January, that you have to have that makes your life worth living? If I can be totally vulnerable, I'll share one of mine with you that I know is a, is a, a, can be an issue. Um, I do this with my children. And I put pressure on their little lives and they don't even know about it. But I put this pressure in their lives that, no, no, you are to make my life worth living. That's horrible. That is horrible. That's my Jesus and. The amount of times in my own heart that I pray, God, if you take my wife, I, I don't know if we're going to be good. That is not right. That's my Jesus and. I don't know what yours are, but we must find them. We must find them. And we'll get into it more of it. Acts 15 is these men of Jewish tradition saying it's Jesus and circumcision in order to be saved, in order to get to God, in order to have eternal joy, in order to be accepted. Now, I'm not picking on the opposition here. I'm not picking on these Jewish men and women in these verses, parts of me totally gets where they're coming from. Totally gets where they're coming from. Circumcision in the Bible is a huge deal. It is a big deal. It's vulnerable, it's violent, it's gross, it's weird, but it's a big deal. It really is. It's a sign of the covenant that you follow the Jehovah, the Hebrew God, 
It is a big deal. Established with Abraham, affirmed with Moses, it is a big deal. So we are not pretending or that, that these guys are the bad guys. I don't want to pretend that these guys are the bad guys. This is all they know. So they are protecting everything they've been taught since childbirth, their own childbirth. But centuries of strong, this is what I want us to get, but centuries of strong tradition and, and these, these crazy rituals don't just show how stubborn these people are, but it actually shows us how the gospel is not like anything else we've ever known. The gospel is ingenious. The gospel is brilliant. It's not like anything else we've ever known. It is the watershed moment, in my opinion, of all of mankind. See, what Peter and what Paul want those in Acts 15 and what they want you, know, you to know and me to know and you to know and you to know and you to know. It's that it's the gospel, that the gospel, this is what they want us to know, that the gospel is not a command. Please hear me. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not his command. It is not a law. It is not a rule for us to do anything. For us to do anything. For us to do anything not to circumcise, not to say a sinner's prayer, not to read 56 chapters of this part of the Bible, not to be baptized, and not to come as holy and as clean as you possibly can to Jesus Christ. The gospel has demanded nothing of us. You and I have no contributing part in the gospel work of Jesus Christ, not a single part. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, this Welch preacher, he would, um, he would ask back in the heyday all these younger people, some Christians, some non-Christians, but he would ask these people the same question over and over and over um, about Jesus. He basically said, are you now ready to say that you are a Christian? He'd say, are you now ready to say you're a Christian? And this was sort of like a litmus test. Are you now ready to say you're a Christian? And, budgy, and judging by their response, he would know where they're at. See, as he would ask this question, he said the young people would hesitate. Young people would hesitate. And you know what they would say? He says 90% of the time, you know what they would say? They say, I do not feel that I am good enough. I do not feel that I am good enough to follow, to follow Christ or to be accepted by God. And then Jones went on in the interview to say, he would say, at once I know that, they are still thinking in terms of themselves. Their idea is still that they have to make themselves good enough to be Christian. Sounds very modest, but it is a denial of the faith. You'll never be good enough. You will never be good enough. Nobody has ever been good enough. The essence of the Christian salvation is to say that he is good enough and that I am in him. The, the word gospel just means good news. It doesn't mean, you know, dear Abby Calms. It means good news. And I love the, the word evangelist in the New Testament. It has this idea where the person would go around proclaiming and screaming and heralding that the battle has been won. The person would go on and scream, the battle has been won. And they let everybody in the war know that it's over. And then they would leave the battlefield and they would go back to the city. You know what they'd be screaming? It's over. It's over. It's been one victory, victory. That's what an evangelist does. So the gospel is not a command 
to do anything or to have ands and ands and ands. It is an announcement of what Christ has done and that the victory is won. I remember in high school or junior high or whatever, seeing the 1945 images of the newspaper of the World War II in Europe had ended. Like when it had ended in this thick, massive black font. I don't know if you guys remember the three words it had over it. It just says, it's all over. It's all over. If you are a Christian, you are now living under the heading which reads, it's all over. It has been won. I actually prefer Jesus' words on the cross where he says, it is finished. The circumcision, clean laws, it's not that they were unneeded. It's just that it has been fulfilled perfectly by the only one who could do it. That Jesus and his grace has done all of it and you have nothing and I have nothing and you have nothing and I have nothing to give, to do. And that's totally okay and that's awesome. You have nothing to prove. You have nothing to boast in. You have nothing to define. Look at verse 10. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? In verse 11, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. There's no discrimination. There is no difference. For some crazy reason, though, and I bet all of us could get this, for some crazy, odd reason, Man, us, we have severe trouble with free grace. I struggle all the time receiving anything. I want to pay people back or deny it or whatever. We struggle with free grace, and we always probably will. Author Jerry Bridges, who I I love, um, explains to us how we naturally naturally go back into performance or moralism, which is, you know, doing or legalism, which is rules when it comes to our relationship with God. He says this, and I love this quote, but it's very, very, I think, pertinent to all of us. He says, so good behavior for me generates so much affection from God and so much bad behavior for me generates so much anger from God. So God's relationship to me, how God thinks of me, is ultimately dependent on how I'm doing. If you believe this, if this is your way of interacting with the living God, this is a lie from the pit of hell. This. That God's reaction or God's approval or God's affirmation of you is dependent upon your current mood or my current mood or our crappy days or our best days or the days when we are totally PO'd at God or whatever. God is unchanging. That's what grace is. God is unchanging. If we don't get the gospel, um, if we don't get what's happening here in Acts chapter 15, the rest and the whole of the Christian faith, and let me say, getting the gospel, getting the gospel is a lifetime of faith and doubt. No, there's nobody here who's going to master in the gospel. No, I got it. Nailed it. Nobody here can do that. Nobody here can claim that. See, if your mind is in a grind in trying to apply this stuff to the circumstances of our every ordinary days. Good, good, yes, exactly, mine too. 
That's faith at work. That's the Holy Spirit at work. That's a progress that can only be from above. If we're struggling here and there, trying to grasp or to get it, how does this apply to this or this? Yes, yes, that tug of war. Because in that time of tug of war, we must always come, though, back to the truth of Acts chapter 15, which is the cardinal issue of our faith or why we're even here, of why we're even here. If this stuff didn't happen in Acts chapter 15, none of us would be sitting here. So the question for 2017 is, at least it is for my own heart. What if we spent less time talking about what we need to do for God and far more time talking about what God has already done for us in the work of Christ Jesus? That would change everything, at least for me. I hope you guys see that there's nothing wrong with New Year's resolutions. I'm all about them. Those are awesome. There's nothing wrong with desiring to improve or wanting to progress. But awareness, I want awareness that those indicatives of doing must be birthed from gospel, from Jesus imperatives. Why? Because your natural tendency, my natural tendency is to drift. It's to drift, like Jerry Bridges was talking about. Some last year here at Collective Church have drifted and they're gone. People in this room will drift this year. And it's very safe for me to say that you too will probably be gone. And some have returned and some may never return. But if we think our boat will stay at the dock unanchored, we don't know what we're talking about. We drift. It's why the cardinal issue of our faith, we must keep coming back to. That is not what I can do, what has already been done. And what keeps us anchored is not disciplines. I'm not telling you guys to have more disciplines or stronger legislation or I would be more about it if the music was better, if the Bible teaching was this, or if there's people my age, or if the community was more like this, or if Christianity was you know, more affirming, or if discipleship was more like this, or if we worked really hard, if I had more control, or if I was an authority. See, true significant progress does not happen by quite frankly, just behaving. I just behave this way. But I believe it happens by believing. Believing bigger and deeper and brighter and thicker that the gospel isn't just the power of God to save us, it's the power of God to forever change us once you and I are saved. A pastor in New York has said a million times, and I've heard it so many times, but it's always so true and good to repeat that the gospel is not simply the ABCs of Christianity, but it's the A to Z of Christianity. I think it's said in like every gospel sermon that any pastor or preacher's ever given, you know, gospel isn't just for unchristian or whatever. And it's true. We have to keep coming back again to the cardinal issue. It's all over the Bible. It's all over Acts. And it might be so much over Acts that you might be sick of it. I would beg of you, don't be. Please, don't be sick of hearing about the gospel. There is nothing else more important that I can offer you than the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is nothing else as a pastor and a friend offering you. There's nothing more than the centerpiece of scripture, which is the gospel and its application to all of life. I don't know, but it leaves me a little bit speechless and I think it does for the people as well in verse 12. Look at verse 12. 
and all the assembly fell silent. They're saying all the stuff about Jesus and what he's done. And they all fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God has done through them among the Gentiles. Um, and essentially, the chapter finishes by going from spiritual freedom to cultural freedom. That's how it wraps up. So basically, this is part one of a two-parter. Because next week, we have Sanctity of Life Sunday, and Claire's Health will be here. And those are very special Sundays for us. So please make it a point to be here for that. But then after that, Acts 15 gets into Christian liberty. And if you know that term, basically what it means is we get into freedoms that we have as Christians. So basically, we'll be addressing the fact of, can Christians have a beer? Or can Christians smoke a cigarette or cigar? Can Christians smoke weed? We'll be talking about R-rated movies. Can I get a tattoo? Or can I listen to Drake or Slayer at the same time? Whatever. (laughs) So I'm assuming that you are curious about it. So please make a point to be here in two weeks. But in closing, I want to end with a, a, probably like top three of my stories, my favorite stories in all of the Bible. And it's about a rich man. I want to end tonight with talking about a rich man who one day approached Jesus and he asked probably the most important question somebody could ever ask. You know what he said? What must I do to be saved? He comes up to Jesus, what must I do to be saved? The most important question somebody could ever ask, and simultaneously the most grave. What must I do to be saved? Have you ever asked this? I don't know. Friends, after today's talk, I hope we could answer, what must I do to be saved? I hope we could take the rich young ruler aside and go, well, you can't do anything, you know, it's in the gospel of Jesus and all that type of stuff. I hope we could explain it. But you know what's crazy? Do you know what Jesus says to him? He goes, obey the Ten Commandments. What must I do to be saved? And Jesus goes, yeah, 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 come here, come here. Obey the Ten Commandments. (laughs) Jesus essentially just said, gospel and, right? Didn't he? Gospel and, or Jesus basically just said, you know, Jesus and circumcision. That's what he basically just did. What must I do to be saved? We would say nothing. Christ has been sent by God on the cross. Ah! And the rich guy goes, you know what he says? I've done all that. (laughs) Wow, wow, wow. You know what Jesus says to him? If you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. See, tonight the rich man, he had options. Tonight you have options. Every single one of you have options. And responding is key. It is key. We will always end our gatherings in a time of response. Jesus asked for a response from this man. Tonight, God looks to you and I believe desires a response to everything, the ands in our life. So we have some very simple ways for you to respond tonight to all of life's circumstances and how the gospel may come to bear on them. So if you're in need of prayer on that big old back white wall and that big old back white wall, there are going to be people standing there with lanyards who want to pray for you. Our prayer team, I love them. They're not about like interrogating you. They're about interceding for you. So if you need anything, go to them. You want to pray over anything. 
If you're trying to discover the ands or you know the ands in your life, go and receive prayer. Also, we're going to be singing in just a few moments. This is biblical for us to come together in one voice and sing. Sometimes I would encourage you during the time of response tonight, just maybe don't sing for a moment and listen to your brothers and sisters around you and allow it to remind you that despite all the craziness we may have on the outside here right now in this moment, we're in worship together. Like that prayer I read earlier. And lastly, communion. Here on my right and on my left. Christians, this is for you and this is only for you. You take the elements, the bread and the cup up here, communion, because this is Jesus. This is Jesus offering himself. Communion is Jesus offering himself and all of himself. Life and death. This is Jesus offering all of himself. And we are told to be reminded of this every, every, every time we gather. You know what happened with the rich young ruler? The Bible says he walked away sorrowful. I've kept all the commandments. Well, go sell all your stuff and come and follow me. And he walked away sorrowful. Why? Maybe because Jesus didn't preach the gospel? Maybe Jesus is a bad evangelist? Why did he walk away sorrowful? Because he kept the majority of the Ten Commandments, but severely, severely, severely broke the first. And that is to have no other God. Possessions and money and riches were his God. So when Jesus says, rid yourself and receive me, he's saying, here I am, all of me. Here I am, all of me. That's what he told us, Rich Young Ruler, and that's what he's telling each and every one of us tonight. And we have a chance to walk away sorrowful or to receive, to receive the gospel is to receive God himself. So communion, which is one of the most beautiful things we do as a community, as a church, is us having a chance to respond accordingly and receive what has been so freely offered. The question is, do you want it? Do you want it? Let's pray.